Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Stephen Gilbo's C-10 backtrack is not enough, the long gun registry never truly went away, and a pastor speaks out after the government locked his church's doors. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome everyone to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is May 4th, 2021. I believe I'm supposed to do a Star Wars pun on May 4th, but it would be inauthentic. So instead, I will just play this little mini ad that the Conservative Party of Canada uh, put out, playing it for journalistic intrigue, not because I necessarily endorse uh, this level of hokiness. Yes, the Conservatives uh, taking aim at the attack on free speech coming from the Liberals, which at this point is fairly undeniable. Bill C-10, a bill that we've been talking about at True North and I've been talking about on this show for months, but people have only started to come around to understanding its significance in the last couple of weeks. This is the bill that uh, revamps dramatically broadcast regulations in Canada to, in the government's words, bring them into the digital age, but in actuality, it means to vastly expand the authority and scope of power for the CRTC. The Canadian Radio Television Communications Commission right now is limited to radio, television, and telecommunications. Under this, it will become the regulator of the internet. And as much as Minister Stephen Gilbo, the Heritage Minister, wants to say this is just about going after Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and all of these big players, it is impossible to go after platforms without going after the content their users post. And I want to walk through what's happened in the last couple of weeks on this, because a lot of this has tended to get mired in the obfuscation from the Liberals, where what originally happened is the Liberals said, no, 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 we're not going after user-generated content. And they put in a stipulation in the bill that specifically said we're exempting this. The Liberals on the Heritage Committee removed that. What the Liberals did was they took it out, so all of a sudden there is no protection against the regulation of user-generated content. A video that I might post to YouTube, something you might post to Twitter or TikTok or SoundCloud or whatever the case may be. And I want you to see this interview with Stephen Gilbo in which he is completely incoherent in his attempts to justify what the bill is actually about. Take a look. I, I know C10 was brought about to try to get some accountability from the Netflixes of the world to get them to contribute to Canadian content in the way that traditional broadcasters do. But this exactly. amendment was put in, and you stood up when it was introduced and talked about you know, this exclusion that was part of the bill to basically protect user-generated content, to make it so that somebody putting something up on social media would not somehow even inadvertently be affected by this. You touted that. And now it is gone from uh, the bill. What changed? Nothing. Bill C-10, as you said in your introduction, is about ensuring that web giants pay their fair share when it comes to Canadian culture, like, Can like traditional Canadian broadcasters do. It's not, it's not a bill about content moderation. The CRTC in its 
more than 40 years of operation. It's never moderated content that we hear on the radio, that we see on TV. The CRTC doesn't say, oh, well, this is good, this is bad. This bill is about ensuring that that companies like Netflix, Spotify, but also also YouTube, which is the largest distributor of music in Canada, pay their fair share when it comes to Canadian culture. That's that's all it is about. It has nothing to do with content moderation. And so I, 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 I'm going to flip the question for a moment here, Minister, because it was important enough to put that exclusion there in the first place. Now it's gone. Why was it important in the first place to put it there? Con- we're we're not interested. I mean, it's not it's not what the bill is about. I mean, I, I hear you saying it's you're not, not interested, simply- but there literally was an exclusion that was put in the original iteration of that bill, the thing that was reviewed, and then it got to committee, and bingo, bango, bongo, the exclusion is gone. So why was it important to put it there in the first place such that now the the committee has removed it? Well, I mean, the, the, the committee decides what they want. The bill, first of all, the committee hasn't even finished doing it, doing its work in, in terms of, of of the amendments. So, so we don't have a full picture of what the bill will, will look like when it comes back when it comes back to the to the, to the House of Commons for for third reading. Would um, you like and, to see the exclusion back in there? It's not necessary. I mean, so so if it's not necessary, it was there, why was it there the, in the first place? Well, you know, we've we've worked on this for for, for many months. We 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 came up with what we thought would be the, the the best possible bill. But 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 bill can always be perfected. They will be amended. Good on CBC for doing that, by the way. Gilbo just kept going back to the same talking points. Could not even understand or explain what the issue was. He he was talking about, well, you know, we change things all the time. And 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 originally, what happened was the Liberals said they weren't going to reverse course, that they were going to keep it. Finally, after days and days and days of backlash from civil liberties groups, from internet law experts, from the opposition, the Liberals have relented. Minister Stephen Gilbo said they are going to put a new amendment forward that protects user-generated content from regulation. This is what the minister said. We want to make sure that the content that people upload on social media won't be considered as programming under the Act and that it won't be regulated by the CRTC. And that's why we will be bringing forward another amendment that will make this crystal clear. No apology, no admission they got it wrong. The Liberals' position has been that everyone else is wrong, but they're doing this just for us. They're doing this just to be nice. Well, gee, golly, thanks. But it would be a lot easier to take that if Minister Gilbo himself, and the Liberals generally, were not viciously insulting people for criticizing this bill of theirs. Last week, Rachel Harder, a Conservative member of Parliament from Lethbridge, put forward a number of very legitimate criticisms, and Minister Gilbo, as True North reported, accused her and the Conservatives of catering to, quote, an extremist element, unquote, of the Conservative Party of Canada. Then take a look at an exchange in question period this week. Rachel Harder once again had a question and Stephen Gilbo took it to an even weirder place. It's sad that the minister still doesn't have an answer to this question. It's been asked for days now and still he continues to point to big organizations like Google and Facebook rather than talking about the protection of individual rights and freedoms, which is the question at hand. 
For bills like C-10, they're put through a sniff test, which means that the Justice Department goes through them and decides whether or not they adhere to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I put forward a motion last week at committee asking that there be another review done to this bill because it has substantially undergone change. Experts have stated that we need a new evaluation from the Justice Minister to determine if C-10 respects the Charter. Does the Minister agree? The Honourable Minister. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I find it incredibly hypocritical that the member of Lethbridge, who, given the opportunity, would not hesitate one minute to remove women's right to choose, a right protected under the Charter of Rights and Freedom, but would like us and Canadians to believe that all of a sudden she cares deeply about said charter. I have rarely seen such hypocrisy before in my life, Mr. Speaker. Unbelievable. Seriously, that... <laughs> Order. Or how about this? Listening to the minister, well, it makes me want to laugh, Mr. Speaker. He is rejecting the opinions of all the experts in the country who have spoken up all week. He's trying to defend the indefensible. Let's be very clear. C-10 does not regulate copyright. It does not make web giants pay. It does not review the role of CBC Radio-Canada. With the surprise amendments made to C-10 last week, without warning... He is giving even more power to the CRTC. He's letting it uh, censor users of social networks. That's the truth. Why does this minister stubbornly insist on going in this direction? Why doesn't he listen to experts once and for all? The Honourable Minister. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And now I would like to quote the head of an uh, organization for cultural diversity and expression, who's addressed my colleague saying that, that the CRTC has never regulated content on Canadian TV and radio, that it has never limited freedom of expression on the airwaves, and that this legislation will not enable the CRTC to do so. And yet, the Conservative Party of Canada is the only party that continues to spread this fake news. It's extremely, extremely unfortunate, Mr. Speaker. So on one hand, we have that the Conservatives are peddling fake news. On the other, that they're just going towards extremist realms. And then, of course, when all else fails, pivot to abortion and call a member of Parliament a hypocrite for daring to be pro-life while also supporting free speech. Now, incidentally, Gilbo claims that abortion is protected in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I didn't remember seeing it there. I did take another look. I even did one of those little control F or command F things where you try to look for a word and I didn't see it anywhere. Maybe he's got a different version than me. In fact, he must because there's no way the liberals are working from the same version of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that everyone else is if they're passing off Bill C-10 and believing that it is constitutional when it dramatically regulates the very place where the bulk of discourse now takes place. So you've got Stephen Gilbo, who's accusing conservatives of extremism and fake news, which I made a point in a video last week that bears repeating, is exactly why the liberals cannot be trusted to regulate the internet. This is exactly why they should not be the arbiters of who gets a quote-unquote license. Remember, Gilbo previously said that you might need to have a license to be an online publisher. This is why they should not be the arbiters of who that is. And even with this so-called protection for individual users, it is not going to do all that much. The issue with the bill was not that one particular amendment. That was uh, certainly an issue, but it wasn't the issue. 
The issue is that the liberals are trying to inject government regulation into a space that is by design supposed to be more of an open forum. It's not like regulating a radio or TV station where the bulk of the content on those stations comes from people who are in the employ of the stations themselves. The bulk of content on Facebook and Google and YouTube comes from individual users who upload that content. And in that sense, you cannot regulate platforms without regulating the content on them. And they say, well, it's just about Canadian content and making these places pay. Sure, come up with a tax structure that helps them. They are, in fact, going after content, and that's the issue. And remember, the minister has confirmed that this week his so-called online harms legislation is coming. And I described this as a one-two punch. First, you lay the groundwork to regulate the internet. And second, you introduce this other bill that will put parameters that are very narrow on what sort of speech can be expressed in regulated fora. And all of a sudden, what the government has done with two bills that seem to be separate is made it so that they can actually regulate the content that is on the internet that you or I could post based on this very narrow and I would say very censor-driven definition of hate speech and definition of online harm. And this is all happening because for the most part, people have not been paying attention. And anytime someone speaks up about this, they're accused of being a conspiracy theorist. It's a popular go-to for the liberals. And this has been, suffice it to say, a very bad week for Stephen Gilbo, and for good reason. This is not a defensible bill. This is an inexplicable and indefensible bill. So the fact that he's been trying to go out and basically hawk it as fervently as he has is proof that the liberals are not actually listening to the pushback at all. And when he has said previously that, oh, well, we're not going after news websites, we're not going after news publishers, one big concern is that Gilbo and the Liberal government have a very narrow definition for what a news website is, what a journalist is. I learned this uh, the hard way, as you may recall, back in the 2019 election when I was uh, banned from, I'm trying to go through the list now, I was banned from covering the Liberal campaign, banned from covering Liberal campaign events, I was detained at roadside uh, by police for trying to go to Liberal campaign events, I was then removed from a public event in which I was attending as a member of the public by, yet again, police, and they apologized for that one, but wouldn't apologize for banning me from events, and my personal favorite in earlier 2019 was when I was banned from attending Christia Freeland's Media Freedom press conference, although I eventually got into that one after a little coup was staged by my fellow journalists, and I'm still very appreciative to this day of their efforts. But this is a government, and Trudeau put out a statement on May 3rd yesterday extolling the virtues of World Press Freedom Day. So I, of course, tweeted a, a gentle reminder of his lackluster commitment to free speech and press freedom thus far. But these are very important because how the government defines these things, how the government constructs these frameworks and these parameters and these regulations matters a great deal. And a lot of the criticism that they would have been getting from the media went away when they said, well, we're not going after media outlets. We're not going after online news. And then a lot of the people that should have been criticizing were like, all right, we're fine. They're not going after us. We can back off from this. 
But the devil is in the details. And if the government does not have a definition of journalism that is consistent with what the constitutional definition is, which is that, hey, there's a freedom to be a journalist. Anyone can do it for themselves and decide, and the audience can decide if what they're doing is worth reading or watching or listening to. So all of this is kind of coming from the same place here which is a government that is not actually respecting free speech, a government that is not respecting press freedom, and a government that is more focused on how we can put up limitations and regulations and stipulations on these freedoms rather than upholding and preserving and protecting these freedoms. So mark my words when I say that this so-called reversal from Gilbo and from the liberals is not going to fundamentally change what it was that uh, was and is so dangerous about this bill. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Many of you may know, I certainly hope you do, because I've been (laughs) telling you enough, I am producing right now a documentary on firearms owners in Canada called Assaulted Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners. And if you stay tuned, I think we'll have some little sneak peek footage to show you in just a couple of weeks from that. It's coming along really well, but we got so much footage going across the country that we are dealing with a lot of stuff to sift through right now. But the real narrative behind this is that ordinary people in Canada who happen to be gun owners are continually persecuted by the government. Their rights, their lives, their livelihoods just don't matter to the government as much as those of non-gun owners do. And that's why this story piqued my interest from Brian Lilly at the Toronto Sun, who will actually be in the documentary. Brian Lilly has uncovered evidence that the RCMP kept a copy of the gun registry, the long gun registry, which was repealed and whose data were were supposed to be destroyed by police agencies, which he has gotten from a criminal defense lawyer by the name of Ed Burlew, who was sifting through documents sent over, disclosure documents by the Crown regarding his client, and he found evidence, he says, that the RCMP kept a copy of the National Gun Registry despite Parliament ordering it destroyed in 2012. The registry had been on the books for about 22 years. It was repealed by the Conservatives and not just stopped, but stopped with a directive that all of the records from it had to be destroyed because the rationale was that government did not deserve to have records of every long gun and every shotgun, non-restricted firearms that was that were owned by law-abiding gun owners. But this lawyer saw documents from 2019 that had information that only could have come from the registry, which he says is proof that someone within the RCMP deliberately lied to Parliament and the courts. And moreover, he found evidence that this document had passed through numerous departments, from the RCMP to the OPP and all of these other places, so the document wasn't just stored, but was being disseminated. And the big problem with this is that this means that information that should not exist in a government database was not just being stored by the government, but passed around as though it was not something that was supposed to be destroyed, as though the government believed it was its right to keep this information. Now, one of the things is that the information would be, for a lot of people, outdated. If the government has, in 2019, a registry that was last updated in 2012, firearms could have changed hands a number of times, but that almost makes it worse in a way, because someone who was on the registry as 
was owning a firearm in 2012 and then in the last nine years may have sold that gun or given it away. Suppose that gun turns up in a crime scene. Now, we know that law-abiding gun owners are not the problem, but I'm speaking hypothetically at this point. Well, now police have this secret registry that they will use to tie this to someone else. And what they do with that information, I have no idea, but I assume they're holding on to it for a reason, because otherwise, why would they after it was ordered destroyed? And Brian Lilly, and you should read his piece, it's fantastically done. Uh, Brian Lilly notes that the RCMP did not respond to requests for comment. A lot of people have suspected this going back to 2013 in High River when RCMP officers were going into people's houses and removing their guns. The question was, well, wait, how do they know which houses? How do they know which guns? And this starts to tell us a little bit more of the picture of the why and how. Now, this is proof that gun owners are under a continued assault, which is exactly why I'm doing the project that I'm doing in Assaulted Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners. And it's also why the point I've raised bears repeating that if you are not a gun owner, you still need to understand that what's happening is a violation of rights and is government overreach. And if they're going to do it with gun owners, there's no guarantee they will not do it with you as well. And that's precisely the point here and why no one should just say, well, I'm not a gun owner. It doesn't affect me. No, if governments are behaving like this, it affects everyone. We, before we take a break, I actually want to play just a, a very brief video clip for you that I came across. It's, it's not connected with anything else we're doing on the show, but I think it encapsulates something that people need to see. And it's difficult to watch, but I think it's important nonetheless. Now, this comes from an independent media organization I hadn't come across before called The People's Media. I don't know much about them. I'm not endorsing them, but you know I'm a big believer in the value of independent media. And they filmed a video of a woman who was protesting against lockdowns in York Region outside, safely, no real issues there. And a police officer is telling her that if she doesn't go home, she's going to get charged. And you see her breaking down. And at first you're like, okay, is this woman just trying to get out of the ticket? But then you listen carefully and you hear why she's so defeated. Go home. Otherwise you will be charged. Do you understand that? Do you want to go to work? Do you understand it? Do you understand you will be charged? I can't help you with that. You lost your job? My business. No warning. You already issued a warning? I'm sorry to hear that. I've watched that four or five times now, and, and every time it's difficult. Here's a woman. I don't know her. I don't know her business. I don't know anything about her except what I saw there. But you can't fake that. This is a woman who has been pushed to the breaking point. She has nothing left. The only thing she can do is stand up and say, I'm fighting back against this. And then what happens? She feels just one more boot on the back of her neck. And I want anyone, because I get emails from people whenever I criticize lockdowns, thinking that, you know, I'm trying to sign the death warrants of people. Well, this is a woman whose business's death warrant was signed by lockdown apologists. And do not for a second believe there is not a human toll to these restrictions and lockdowns. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. 
Welcome back to the Andrew Lawton Show. We've had over the last more than a year now, what is what are we talking about here, 13, 14 months, a number of churches that have been forced along with other places of worship into this yo-yoing of restrictions. They can operate, then they have to shut down, and it goes back and forth. And, and all of this has been, many people argue, a complete violation of religious freedom. Governments, including in Ontario, have been laying a number of charges against churches. They have the ability to fight these in court, but you can't fight in court necessarily as easily when your building is locked. This is what happened to Trinity Bible Chapel. The Attorney General of Ontario went to court and asked for an injunction to literally lock the pastors and congregation out of the church. A court granted that. They are locked out right now until Saturday, and this could potentially be renewed. The pastor for the church in southwestern Ontario, Pastor Jacob Rayom, joins me on the line now. Pastor, good to talk to you. Thanks for being with me today. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you, Andrew. Now, you would normally be doing this interview from inside your church, but you can't even get there as a pastor right now to do administrative work. Am I correct? Right. The locks have been changed, and there's uh, signs on the door saying um, that uh, we've been ordered out of the building. So, yeah. And, and this isn't just a, a ban on having a service. This is a, a ban on you going in. Were, were you given notice to go in and get things that you had in there at least? Yeah, so the, the court order came on Friday, late Friday afternoon, and uh, we were given till I believe, 2 o'clock on Saturday to uh, do what we had to do. We This is the second time we've been before the courts about having our building locked, so we we were prepared to uh, to do this. Yeah, we were prepared to, to pack things up. And the timing of this is, of course, not circum uh, not uh, not coincidental. On Sunday, you would have been in there having church, right? So the ministry of the attorney general um, had an emergency uh, hearing on the Friday because uh, they wanted to make sure that we didn't uh, worship our Lord and Savior on Sunday. What's the basis for this? Is it that they're convinced that the tickets they've been giving are just not good enough? I, I believe so. So we've. We've received so many tickets. I think our church now um, is, a, is an entity has upwards of over $40 million, perhaps, in, uh, in maximum fines. Personally, I think I'm up to seven, 800000 in maximum fines. Every elder has been fined. We had people, we had police cars waiting outside of our church the last time we held a service, and they would pick people off as they left the, as they left the facility and ticket them on the side of the road. And even even last Saturday, there were people praying in the in the church parking lot as the doors were about ready to get locked. And we must have had uh, 20, 20 authorities watching us. And then as as they left, they got ticketed. And then people received visits from the police last night for being at a small little prayer meeting in a parking lot. You wrote something about this on the church's website, and I want to read the title because I think this is very important, and certainly for people that are not within the church family, they might not understand this. You say, we lost the building and kept the church. We often refer to churches as buildings, but in this particular case, you've been forced to confront the reality that the building is not, in fact, the church. That, that's absolutely correct. So my goal as a, as a shepherd of our church is to defend, um, one of my objectives, I have to feed my sheep and I have to defend my sheep. And right now, since uh, March of last year, our sheep have been under assault from the province of Ontario. And the province of Ontario has sought to dictate to us um, how we should worship our savior. And uh, my, my assertion is that uh, Doug Ford, while he has not claimed this explicitly, he has 
asserted himself as the de facto head of the church in Ontario. And uh, we are resisting his headship over the church because we believe that Jesus Christ is head of the church. If you say that the church is not the building, I have to ask, why does it matter that you worship inside the building? Why have the concessions such as drive-in services, virtual services, why have they not been, in your view, good enough? Well, first of all, we own the land. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ has allowed us to steward that land, uh, for, and so we want to use that land for his glory. And uh, we have used that land for his glory by inviting our community to come worship with us and to gather in the church uh, physically and to sing his praises and exchange greetings of warm Christian uh, fellowship. And so we wanted to, to assert uh, Christ's crown rights over the church. We want to assert Christ's headship over his own worship. And, um, and tr Christ has commanded us to gather. The, the very word church, people don't understand this. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and the, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, and it, and it means gathering. Where you don't have a gathering, you don't have a church. And an online gathering is not—gathering in pixelated images is, is not a gathering. You can't have a marriage on the Internet, and you can't have a church on the Internet. You can't raise your children on the Internet. And in fact, uh, the Apostle John referred to his congregation as his little children. And so there was a season there where I was doing sermons on the internet and my heart would break after every time I did it because I thought I felt like I was interacting with, with, with what John affectionately referred to as his little children. I'm having to raise my little children um, through the internet. And uh, any parent would understand that that would be absolutely gut-wrenching if they can't understand what the role of a minister is towards his congregation. And one point that I think you raised that's very important there, because a lot of the time critics of churches that have been doing what you're doing have said, well, you know what, all these other churches are, are going online, why can't they? But the reality is even the government has conceded that weddings and funerals need to be done in person. Now, with reduced capacity, but the government even concedes that uh, certain things have to be in person to be real. And I think you're very right to point out that if that's the case, you can't be married on the internet, you can't have a funeral on the internet, then why should you be expected to have a, a service on the internet? Well, uh, that's absolutely right. But what it's coming down to is I've been told by people in government and people in the media, well, why can't you just go online and do what the government says? At, at the end of the day, it boils down to one issue. Who has supremacy over the church? So a pastor friend of mine recently noted that um, we something to the effect of we live in a day and age where the government seems to think they have the right to dictate our terms of worship. But if the church or ministers speak into government policy and government actions, we're, we're yelled at and shouted down for violating separation of church and state. Well, that's a complete misunderstanding of separation of church and state because the separation of church and state means that the government has no control over our terms of worship, over our polity and over our governance as a church. And there have been wars that have been fought over this. People have, people have shed their blood over this. And I'm not about to hand the bride of Christ over to the province of Ontario because it's my job as a shepherd to stand up and defend what God has entrusted to me. And when I stand before Christ on Judgment Day, I want to be able to say I did whatever I could to protect his bride. One thing that I, I think the government has not acknowledged, and perhaps they're not aware, or perhaps they're just being willfully ignorant with, with a lot of these restrictions, is that the, you know, 2,000 years of Christianity that has developed has included gathering, and, and this is very biblical, it's very clearly defined, and the idea that man could change that overnight is a fundamental inversion of, of what the Christian faith, or what any religion is actually about. 
Right, and true Christians will will gather. I mean, there has been governments in the past who have attempted to do similar things. I don't know if it's ever been done in the name of public health, but it's certainly been in the name of um, uh, submitting to some sort of state dogma, whether it's uh, a state religion or something else. But um, but churches managed to gather. The early Christians didn't have buildings. They gathered under the, the city of Rome in the catacombs. Um, during the Reformation, the Covenanters in Scotland uh, had to gather in fields. And, and the punishment, if they were found out, the Covenanters were found out, uh, they could be killed, and some of them were. John Bunyan was a Baptist minister in the 17th century. Uh, he spent many years in jail because he, he believed that God had called him to preach the gospel, and he would gather his congregation in forests. So the reality is, is that is that true faithful ministers have always gathered their congregations. You are locked out until Saturday. What's happening between now and then? So we're in court Thursday morning at 10 o'clock to talk about this again. And and the government is seeking to extend this? Is that their goal, to keep you locked out indefinitely? My understanding is the Ministry of the Attorney General would like to see us locked out of our church until COVID's over, whenever that is. Wow. Interesting thing is it happened in court last week, and um, the, the judge commented on something that was going on, because you know that all the courts, I think, in Ontario are doing it on Zoom, right? Mm-hmm. And so the judge made a comment about some interaction in the Zoom call, and he said uh, something to the effect of, I'm sorry, this is very unnatural to do this on Zoom. <laughs> you should enter that as evidence on Thursday, the, uh, well, <laughs> that, that if court, I, I if court proceedings of... aren't natural, then how can church services be? Well, exactly, exactly. And again, the, the churches have been meeting for, I mean, if you want to go into the Old Testament, we've been meeting since creation, um, at least once a week and gathering together. I Look, if, if I thought that this was as big of a threat as the media was drumming it up to be, and as the government was drumming it up to be, I, I might be more sympathetic in limiting the capacity of our church. Okay, but my observation on the ground, and as I have is I've looked at the numbers, the government's own numbers. I'm not seeing an overwhelming uh, amount of deaths if you compare 2020 with 2019, or if you compare deaths year per year. I mean, if we really had um, a, a massive outbreak of some serious contagion, we would all know multiple people would be um, who would be dead. And not only that, the whole stay home, stay safe thing would be a misnomer because they'd be begging us to go help them bury the bodies and uh, minister to the dead people as they're, or the dying people on their deathbeds. But that's just, that's not going on. It's not going on. And I've, I mean, I've lived in this country all but five years. I lived in the States where I did my training, but all but five years, I lived in this country my whole life. And my whole life, I've heard about hospitals at capacity and hospitals having massive wait times and ICUs being flooded. And and all of a sudden, um, this year, it's different. We need to shut down all of society because the ICUs are being flooded. That's not, that's not my primary area of interest. My primary area of interest is the supremacy of Christ over his church. I'm a minister. John 10 tells us that if there is a threat to the church of God and if the ministers run, they're not true shepherds, they're hirelings. And so I don't want to be found as a hireling on the day of judgment. Amen to that. Uh, Trinity Bible Chapel, Pastor Jacob Rayom joining me now from uh, not the church where he belongs. Pastor, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thanks, Andrew, for having me.
That was Pastor Jacob Rayom of the Trinity Bible Chapel in southwestern Ontario. And interestingly enough, we, we didn't get into it during the interview, but it is a new church building. For the longest time, they didn't have a permanent space. They finally, in I think 2019, uh, built this permanent space to be their church. And now the government is, what, not even two years later, locking them out of it because uh, putting millions and millions of dollars in tickets on them isn't enough. Tickets that they have a legal right to fight. And that's true of this church. It's true of the Church of God in Elmer, which as well has had, I believe, $50 million in tickets, which at a certain point, I mean, it's just theatrical. You're just adding more abstract things on when these are going to be fought in court and not on the ground with chains on a lock in a parking lot. One thing I would point out here is that I do not believe that any pastor, minister, priest has to behave in a certain way. If if there are ministers that are convinced that they can keep a biblical form of worship by closing their doors and doing it online, that's up to them. My issue is that I do not believe for a second government can or should make those determinations. It's not for government to say, well, we think that your faith is fine with having Zoom services. We think your faith is fine. We, we don't think, you know, you need to do communion here in the case of Catholics. We don't think you need to do this. And Pastor Rayom mentioned very clearly that when you are talking about uh, weddings, you can't do it online. Government recognizes that, which means that government concedes some religious rites cannot be done remotely. And in that case, it's up to religious denominations to determine what way they operate in and not up to government. And and the idea that government gets to be the arbiter of this, the arbiter of faith practices, is absolutely insane, a complete inversion of what was supposed to be the removal of government from religion. A lot of people talk about the removal of religion from government. Well, that has to be a two-way street. And just as a matter of fact, this week, we have Pastor James Coates of the Grace Life Church near Edmonton on trial, as well a church that at one point had its uh, parking lot barricaded by police so no one could go there, had its pastor literally behind bars. And it's a very small number, relatively speaking, of ministers that are standing up, whether you're talking about the Church of God, Grace Life, Trinity Bible Chapel, some other isolated examples. And a lot of people, even within the Christian community, are are trying to hold these ministers out as being pariahs. But it's not for the government to decide. That's the whole point. If churches want to have these and denominations want to have these discussions internally about what can we do, how do we respond to COVID, what's the best practice, that's fine. But the idea that the state would lock pastors and congregations out of their churches is egregious. We've got to end things here. We will be back in just a couple of days' time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.